Hi, everyone. I'm Steph Angstadt. And I'm Sue Miller. And you're listening to the Collective Creamery Podcast. Where we're crafting the conversation on American artisan cheese. In today's episode, we have an interview with Rebecca Seidel, who's a Berks County dairy farmer starting a creamery called One Horn Farm. And she was kind enough to tell us a little bit about her startup operation, what a $50,000 creamery looks like, and had some pretty interesting things to say about the current dairy crisis and the culture of the dairy industry and the urban and rural divide. There's a lot of juice to this conversation, Sue. I love it when Rebecca is just let loose. She's fired up. If you don't follow her on Twitter, you absolutely should. She's got some pretty interesting things to say. Casein my cells, isn't it? Oh, casein my cells. One of also my one of my favorite Instagram handles. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, well, what's really uh, important about this is that you know Rebecca grew up on this dairy farm in Berks County. She went off to college, studied uh, American history, and spent you know some years outside of the industry before she went to work on another dairy farm in Berks County to kind of see if she had what it took to run her own farm. She spent nine years on a neighboring farm to you, Steph. Yep. Wholesome Dairy. Right. Managing that herd of cows and developing a line of products. And and now she's back renting um, a facility from her family, going to build a creamery there. She's got a lot of opinions, many of which I believe in too. And I think this is a pretty thought-provoking interview. And maybe it's because she's worked outside of the industry and she's left the farm that she's able to have this, I think, pretty broad and unique perspective on what's ailing the industry and maybe some ways that it can prove. So I thought her advice was pretty interesting. And uh, we'll, we'll see what you think. We think you should listen in. <laughs> Rebecca, you are in the process of um, transitioning to your family's farm and starting a creamery. How is it going? It is going slowly. Um, although I found that most things involving family do go slowly. <laughs> I am renting 24 acres uh, from my parents. The rest of it is in corn, uh, which my dad operates. So we have two separate operations operating out of the same uh, land area. So there are obviously some coordinations that need to happen between getting his corn crop in and getting my cows out to pasture. I'm, I just recently turned to the farm. I was, uh, I worked on another farm for nine years. Um, and I'm just, I'm slowly, um, trying to take over more of the management. I'm finding myself more involved in the corn than someone who's not financially involved in the corn <laughs> would ever expect to be. Um, but I also, she's been sucked into the corn vortex. <laughs> I, I have been, um, uh, don't tell my family that they're, they're sure that I'm just going out there to coordinate everything for them as a, I'm just walking outside already. So why don't you go talk to the people who are planting our corn? Uh, but I'm, uh, we're still, we're, my family and I are like kind of feeling out the dynamic between them and us. And I also recognize that my parents are both 70. And as the person on the farm, I'm also falling into a bit of a caregiver role, not caregiver in this like full time sort of sense, but, um, my dad is having mobility issues. So I'm often the one who is helping my mom get mulch for around the farm, dump her weeds, take the trash down. So I'm trying to negotiate this role with being the daughter of aging parents, being a new mother, and working with this farm. So like I said, 
it's going slowly, but I can look at myself in the mirror and feel as though things are going well enough <laughs> when I wake up in the morning. Oh my gosh, that's so impressive. Um, all right, let's let's talk about what these. Let's talk about your cows for a minute. Okay. Okay. Which so, of them? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess all of them. So you freshened how many this spring? I freshened thirteen this spring. Okay. I have one hitting in the fall. Um, she was bred on another farm. Uh, when I was pregnant, I sent uh, my lactating cows to another operation, and she just kind of got bred late. But I really like her personality, and she's from a different bloodline, so so I don't have such a like from one group of animals just to diversify my herd. I'm going to let her freshen and somehow I deal with a cow freshening off schedule. But I freshen 13 and I have about 20 altogether. And all Ayrshire's? Or? They're all Ayrshire's. Nice. Um, oh, perfect cheese milk. <laughs> they are. The, the milk is wonderful. It's sweet. It's yellow. It's a, I've worked with Ayrshire milk for a number of years. It's, it's really a joy to work with. And some of these cows come from bloodlines that from when you were a kid in 4-H, right? Um, well, I mean, or- it, it goes back further. Um, I think my great-grandfather got Ayrshire's when he was a cattle jockey. He used to work as a livestock jockey going in northern Berks County. He would drive a veterinarian's herd of animals from one town to the next selling them. So he would, he would move the animals and then you would sell a good-looking animal. You'd pick up a sick animal. Then like on the drive to the next town, you'd slowly feed it and brush it and like put fat on it. Then you sell it to the next town. And this is one of the things he did. And my general understanding is that that is how he got Ayrshire's, but the people who are probably involved are not necessarily alive to tell me. At what point were your um, parents operating this dairy farm? My folks came back in 79. So my grandparents milked cows uh, over in Masillon Springs. They bought the current farm in Wilmersdorf in 1962. My father met my mother in 72. They got married. He was working on his PhD in dairy science management when he found out that the data set that he was supposed to be working on his PhD for did not exist. They had told him, like, hey, come and use this data set. I think it was about soil microbes and milk production to write your thesis. And they're supposed to get 12 different theses off of this one data set. And he kept not seeing it. And then he finally cornered one guy and said, where is it? It didn't exist. And he would have to spend another three years doing research. And they were 30 at that point. And my grandfather suffered a grand mal seizure. So instead of going into academics, my dad came home. Uh, They took over the farm. Well, they slowly bought it. I think they finished paying it off in 1990 for my grandparents. But they came back to the operation in 79. And they milked to 99. Okay. Yeah. They got out the year they both turned 50. We had a Thai stall barn. And milking every day for 20 years is not good for your body. And it would end up being a, a, I was heartbroken. I was 15. And the day they auctioned off the herd is still just like, if I read these, and currently in this dairy environment, when you're, you know, reading about dairy sales, I just, I just like cry. Um, and my husband will tell you, we start dating the month after my parents sold the herd. And I would, for about a year, I would cry. I would just, I'd walk into the barn and cry. I'd hear a song and cry because like that. It just hurt to lose my herd so much. Um, But from my parents' perspective, uh, I think they physically needed it. In order to make the farm work, they would either have to go organic at that point or go larger. And with where their bodies were, they just did not want to make that decision. Uh, My brother was not interested in farming. And as me as a 15-year-old, they're like, ha, ha, ha. Yes, this like English major who's begging us to keep the cows would really, really be interested in farming. Like, ha, no, she wouldn't be. Uh, so they sold the herd, and that, that was their decision. It worked out, I don't want to say well, but my dad ended up having 
open heart surgery in 2002. Um, so the the step back from actively farming was something that was super necessary for their health and well-being. So you're 15, your family sells their herd of cows. What's your journey that um, brings you to this point? Well, I became an English major. Um, I actually, I went to Penn State. I double majored in English and American studies. I really hammered academics hard. I got done with a double major in three years. I then got into a master's program at Penn State uh, for American studies. I was focusing on literature, 20th century American culture, and geek culture. I was writing my master's thesis on PhD on um, Dungeons and Dragons. And then I start having severe OCD, and I was having trouble functioning in school. I got medicated. I got married. A a lot of things happened a very short period of time. And then I went to my first academic conference. And I don't know why it took me until then to realize, like, oh, my gosh, I have to travel if I'm going to have this life. I Mm. hate traveling. So, so many things were going on. That was 2007. It was 2007. And my husband had just graduated. It was the economic downturn. He wasn't finding a job. I had attempt to hire a job in addition to a part-time job, which fell through. So I thought, you know, maybe we should move home. So I applied for this milking job in the Ole Valley, which I think in large part was probably motivated by being on a ton of Paxil to make that think that was a good idea while we were living in Harrisburg. Um, <laughs> and, and I got the job. I did it on weekends uh, eventually. And that's Wholesome Dairy Farms. Eventually I got offered a full-time job the same week my husband got offered a full-time job in Harrisburg. So we spent five years only seeing each other on the weekends. Were you missing, like, were you missing dairy cows? Were you just wanting to be around them again? I was, at that point, trying to figure out a way to move back home and make it financially viable on my parents' farm. Okay. Um, oh, I, so that was already a seed. All, yeah, I, I was, at that point, I was thinking ice cream. Oh, I, yeah, I wanted okay. to see if I could hack it. Like, with my parents' farm, I think a lot of kids function, or... In my particular situation, I kind of functioned in this farmhand role. Go feed the calves, go rake the hay, help us milk. But like, you're really not in charge of anything important. So I never had that experience of actually being integral to the uh, operation. So I wanted to see what my chops were like. Um, I wanted to to see if I could actually farm because I knew I could make food. I was like... Miss, like, Alice Waters, Deborah Mass, and reading all the hip cookbooks and, like, <laughs> you know. Not like, bad for a farm girl from Wilmersdorf. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Like, I, I, I had the food thing down. I wasn't worried about my ability to do that, which, let me tell you, once I started doing cheese, that was an entirely different, unexpected world. Um, but I wanted to see how I, if I could physically, intellectually, and all that hack farming. So I was like, I'll try this out. And I got stuck there for nine years. <laughs> I love that you were there for nine years. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. So is that where you started your current um, herd of Ayrshires? Well, what happened was in 2010, my uncle had three Ayrshires. My uncle lives in Colorado. This is going to be very complicated. In the 1970s, <laughs> his show cow named Princess uh, freshened on two quarters. She had a negative reaction to the dry off treatment that had been used. And she lost two quarters. And instead of beefing her, my parents sent her out to my uncle in Colorado. Uh, my uncle's a geneticist, uh, a livestock geneticist and reproductive physiologist. He, so this is in your blood. You have a lot of like dairy <laughs> academia. I, I'm like, I, I'm not going to use the term failure, but I am singled out as an English major among um, <laughs> science types, among science types, which which has earned me a lot of um, 
Well, it's it's gotten a lot of good one-liners from my family over the years. Yeah. <laughs> when I, I once said to my brother, who's a computer engineer, uh, like, hey, I did uh, two degrees in three years. And over Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner, he said, well, I know you're not good at math, but zero times zero is still zero. <laughs> oh, <laughs> only a brother can get away with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So my, my uncle, like, bred these cows for two, two and a half decades and uh, kind of want to get rid of them because he didn't like the place that the, the operation that they had been with. He he just was starting to get concerned if it was the best place for them and he wanted to sell them. So it ended up being this opportunity that I could buy the cows. And it was that period of time when no one was freshening at my job. I was like, I can do this and bring milk into this operation. I can buy into it and have a part of it. And like eventually I had like a 20% of the herd was mine um, because those cows became like 20 cows. And this is at Wholesome Dairy. This is at okay. Wholesome Dairy. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Which is really what, like seven miles down the road from oh, where we sit right now. it's less than that. You could like throw two? a rock. Yeah. Oh, it's only two miles? Two to three, it I'd say. It's further when yeah. I'm driving. It's, it. it's the bridge. The, yeah. the bridge seems bridge, the bridge extra traffic, long. Right? Yeah. There's a covered bridge that separates us. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> well, so then, you know, when Wholesome Dairy was selling, when I first met Mark, yeah. He was. He showed up at the Anselma Farmers Market. This is like eleven years ago, mm-hmm. maybe even twelve years well, he ago. He started in oh oh eight. He started in oh eight. Because yeah, I, so I that's start, right. I started six months six months after he started. That would be I, right. I started working there, and he showed us up at the Anselma Farmers Market with raw milk. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing I know, he's making cheese. But you were making the cheese. I was making cheese. You drove that conversation. Um, I don't know if I drove that conversation. Um, well, he's he's open to entrepreneurial. He well, what happened was he was making occasional batches of cheese, okay. himself, and and I knew nothing about cheese making. Like I knew I knew less than zero about cheese making. I knew like. You you buy cheese from the grocery store on a rapid level of cheese making. You knew there was milk involved. I knew I, I did not even know there was Reddit involved. Like that's that's that was my level. Did you like cheese? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't. It's yeah. hard if you're a dairy consumer not to like cheese. I guess. Um, there are people who don't like it, and that's totally the, within their right. But I did like cheese. Um, so he was he was occasionally making cheese, but not regularly, and. The reason why I contextualize how little I knew is he was like, well, I start washing the curd and I just that was too much work. So I stopped washing the curd. If you get now I recognize what a radical shift in a a cheese recipe that would be. And it totally seemed like, all right, that's fine. That's whatever you do. And he took and I took over cheese making a very small batch, not quite made up to um, legal standards at that time. We were doing it in his home kitchen. But once again, I didn't know that that was a problem. I was just like, oh, my boss is telling me to do this, la, la, la. And then he, that's when we met because he sent me to the Peter Dixon cheese course. Yeah. And that's that's when I start, said, hey, like, let's stop making this recipe that you kind of made up. Let me try to make Gouda. But that was kind of like my first introduction to cheese making. Because you said you said earlier that, you know, you have these kitchen skills, but that they you didn't realize how little you knew about cheese. So, like, what were some of the, like, eye-opening experiences and you know, um, yeah, yeah. in in the process. Um, I'm really good at following recipes and processes. So nothing really, uh, floored me until I got to aging. Um, Mm. aging is so weird. Aging is magical, but it's, if, if you're used to following a recipe, like at the very worst, you're going to like make something overnight and get it unmolded in the morning. If you're going to make like 
a berry soaked bread pudding and it needs to absorb the juices overnight. You, you can't pick at it that night and see how it tastes, although you kind of can, um, but you can't get the full thing. And this idea that like, okay, so now I have this white ball of like kind of not even tacky squeeziness that you have to put somewhere and can get no information about it for 60 days. <laughs> Just it, it, it really went against like my like, and you can't do a lot. You can, you can adjust the aging environment, but you can't just like, oh, add a little salt. And that There's was. There's no tweaking th- as yeah, it goes. Yeah, and that was really hard for it's me to adjust praying. to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. That was, and that, that was, that was eye-opening, the, the, the fermentation process. And I don't want to say eye-opening, but once I start actually making other products, and even then, but the amount of time you spend washing dishes. Yeah. And and, oh, and that's the story is, of our life, right? And, and that is such an interest. I don't think, you know, people can be like, ah, you're washing dishes, but that is such an important part of what you are doing. It yeah. may be the most important It, it is. I mean, as, from a food safety aspect, it is, but also from a standardization aspect, it is. Yeah. It has to be done right. It has to be done the same Consistently, time. every single time. Things need to be clean. Yeah. Yeah. And clean is not what you think it is when you first start. No. And, <laughs> and I will say, you know, it's, it's really weird. Right now, I'm bucket milking two cows. And I'm hand washing everything. And from going into a CIP system, which is a clean and play system where you're relying on mechanization to wash all the milkers to hand washing it, it feels so good to hand wash it. After spending so long uh, making cheese, washing my hand, and then relying on a CIP system, like I know that every time I pick my milker, my milker is pristine and that feels so good. There's never going to be any like mysterious crud under a gasket. You know, there's never going to be like any dirt someone left over from the previous milking and didn't wipe off the milker well enough. And that is, it's, I I tell my husband, I'm like, I get so happy to see my clean milker every morning. (laughs) Um, so I, I'm really, it's, it's, I'm kind of like reverse engineering, taking these lessons from cheese making and putting them into, into milking right now. But, you know, right now in this, in this slow restart I'm having, I've had uh, lots of amazing opportunities. Um, I never milked a cow fully out by hand before. And I've learned so much about like utter feeling and like letdown in production. And I milked cows for nine years, like six days a week, and four, nine years, and farm. grew up on a dairy farm. But my parents were just like, hey, just hold that milker. They weren't just like, are you monitoring this cow's letdown? But I learned so much by hand milking a couple cows for a few months about like what an udder feels like that I was kind of going on like, I was feeling udders. I was like an udder guru, but I didn't fully have like the whole like experience of like, okay, so I'm stripping. This is what it, this is what it feels like when the her letdown has, when she's almost out of milk. This is the amount of milk I'm still getting. This is what it feels like when the udder is empty. You know, I once read in a, a an old dairyman's handbook that a, a milked out udder should feel like a wet rag. And I kind of understand what that feels like now. So it's, I'm, you know, uh, going slowly is having its own, you know, detrimental effects, but I'm, I'm, it's really cool to be in a place where I'm still learning more. Yeah. And because you're learning it for your own business and your own benefit, exactly. you're probably absorbing I it really, so much more. You know, I ended up leaving my previous job in November of 2017 and having that intellectual space and time to reset and reprogram myself, reprioritize things and also adjust to motherhood. Um, has been super important, and I'm I'm glad I that space was kind of accidental, but I'm I'm glad I, I had it. I love that because the last time I saw you, by the way, listeners, we're so sorry for this background noise. We've got some guinea hens acting up. Jordan did say he wanted animal sounds. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> that's he our meant producer during the interview, but <laughs> sorry, Jordan. Uh, we love you. You always do a great job. 
So anyway, uh, so when I saw you, um, you just found out you were pregnant. And I remember you knocking on my door of the creamery. I was like, Rebecca, how are your plans for your creamery that you're about to start? And you said, well, actually, they're on hold. And I was like, oh, bummer. What's going on? And you're like, well, I'm freshening in spring. <laughs> and I remember you said you, you were timing it. You you were freshening. Freshening. You were about to have a baby in spring with all your beautiful yeah. cows. Yeah. Well, what happened was, you know, my husband and I had tried to start a family for a couple of years because our initial plan was like, maybe we'll stay at our current job. And then once the kid's like two and can obey basic commands about not killing itself around cows, we'd go and start our own farm. And that just wasn't working out for us. And so I was like, meh, well, I just go back and start. Because like we, we liked the idea of having a child, but it wasn't like I will be wrecked forever if this thing doesn't happen. And I'll do whatever it takes to make it happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just <laughs> right. like, you know, I, you know, we've been together for 20 years at this point and we enjoy each other and it was fine. And like nothing, we weren't just like, this is, this is the most important thing in our lives. And then like, I took my first vacation in seven years. I came back pregnant. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So, that is amazing. so then um, by that point I had, uh, my previous boss wanted a one year notice from me. So I had given him my one year notice and I had already put everything, and I told my parents, like, hey, I'm coming home. So I put everything in motion to leave. And, you know, by the time you're saying, hey, I'm quitting a job, you can't be like, I'm going to unquit this job. Um, <laughs> so so I had to, like, and that's why, like, things are going slowly, because I was planning to start in 2018 instead I had a baby. Um, and, yeah, there's this financial aspect of I am feeding cows. I am renting land. Um but I'm not jumping to anything stupidly, and that feels kind of good. And I'm, like I said, I'm having time to, like, look at my space, come up with new ideas, wait for a magical grant to show up, uh, reprioritize things. So I'm I'm feeling very good that that space was created for me. And also, you know, once I was started at the creamery, I would have never stopped to have a kid. Um, in some magic ways, it happened at this perfect time. Yeah. It's just, it's beautiful how that happened. Yeah. Yeah. And Adlai's just the sweetest baby he, ever. We are... <laughs> I, I don't know how we got this lucky. A lot of people are like, well, you guys are really chill people. And I'm like, it's, not, I mean, we are. We do have like a very calm household, a very loving household, very patient household. But like I've seen those households with little demons. So it's not, it's not just us. You know, we're something, I always say we got the baby on easy mode. And he's always, he, he was born on easy mode. Well, they say everything happens for a reason. So to your point, I mean, maybe you were meant to take that time off, have a baby, become a mother and this magical grant that happened to drop in our laps that I'm proud to say all three of us received. Let's yes. have a toast Let's to that. Let's have a toast. Cheers. 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 Thank you, Pennsylvania. Yeah. This was the Pennsylvania Dairy Investment Grant that all three of us applied for. 29 were given out and we each got one. So it's a pretty remarkable grant because here, you know, we've been talking a lot about the dairy crisis and Pennsylvania isn't the only state to be suffering. It's it's going all across the country. And in Pennsylvania, they're really concerned we about what will happen if we lose small dairy farms because, A, the economic impact they contribute in rural regions and also the cultural impact. So I can't help but think how wonderful this is that you received this grant to kind of revive the a, a farm that your parents had sold the herd. Mm -hmm. They were still farming, but there's cows back there. And there's like this new life kind of 
coming into this farm. I'm really excited about it. Um, and I, I really, you know, when I structured the grant, um, I, I had I had two things in mind. One is make my parents' farm a work. I don't want to say working farm again because that would be discounting the amount of work they're doing with corn. But it, I would really like to be putting some money back to the farm. Farm was built in 1810. Uh, they built an addition to it in 62. It, the, built, the addition was never done well, and it's been leaking for my entire life. Uh, we have a straw shed on the property that's older than that. That was part of a larger property at the time, and I would like to get to a place where. You know, I feel as though I'm, even though I'm doing this big thing, I also feel as a trans, I'm a transitional figure. I have my nephew and I, I'm not my nephew, I have my son. I also have two nieces and a nephew. And I want to get the farm to a place that by the time they are, I don't want to say inherit it, but when they're starting to move into the level of intellectually having to manage it, it's a more useful property. It's in better shape and they have more options of what to do with it. So that's my one idea with, with getting this ground and coming home. It's, it's also to be at home, be helping take care of my parents. My dad's on the Burst County Conservation District Board. And we're very, as a family, we're very dedicated to biodiversity and to conservation and to fighting invasive species. And we're, we're also, you know, we're forming plans that who knows, like, at what level they'll actually be enacted. But my dad's, like, would like to make a wildlife cor- corridor around our fence row um, that I can graze through to keep, like, the um, invasive species down, but will also create, like, a habitat for insects and that sort of thing. And so, first of all, I'm it, it's, it's a self-serving job creating and also, like, conservation family thing. Um, the other thing is why I wrote my grant, what I also had in mind, um, is that I plan to... I want to do the entire project for under $50,000 for the kitchen side of it. I'm going to write up plans about how I did it. So hopefully other farmers can access that in PDF or print form and redo the same structure on their own properties. Oh, neat. Um, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah that was part of my grant. What a gift application. That, that would be because if you're, be. if you're thinking about um, small family farms, people are financially unable to leverage capital mm-hmm. to, you know, Four hundred thousand dollars, or yeah. whatever, it would cost to build a new facility. And if you could do reproduce yeah. what you're doing, Rebecca, that's yeah. a uh, real gift. I'm, that's trying, I'm doing the starter space. I'm starting with a prefabricated shed. I'm doing a little sub labor myself. But I'm hoping to get everything in under fifty thousand dollars, and then other farms that are in a place where they would like to try value up procs. How do I say this? $50,000, you know, it is a lot. But if you look at general farm investments, it's not a huge hunk. It's not a tractor, you know, or a new tractor. It's not a built. Yeah. What's a new yeah. tractor? $250,000? Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that was that was part of my grant. And the other, my grant application, the other thing, which I'm sure, how do I say this? This is a slightly different to an act. But when I start getting um, employees, I'd like to get two interns a year. And I like to take one from a non-traditional farming background and one from a traditional farming background. I do think some of the problems we're having in the dairy industry stem from being too insular, um, stem from listening to our own culture too much, um, from not getting outside voices involved in our food production. So I really hope to not only integrate people who are in the same uh, situation I'm in, which is a farm family who wants to come back to the farm, but also people from non-traditional farming backgrounds or underrepresented farming backgrounds. For example, there are tons of Latino people involved in the dairy industry. They're not owners. They are employees. They're workers. They're Sometimes they grow up on the property with their families and they don't have access into the giant investment that a farm is or urban kids who are interested in farming or women who are interested in farming. And I'd like to get those voices onto my farm 
when they're young and also interacting in the farm community, starting to learn skills and having this like dip in the water before they like go to college and like decide their destiny. It's so impactful. I mean, being here in Berks County, we have um, a huge immigrant population in Reading. And um, I think there's such an opportunity and maybe a responsibility to, as you're saying, kind of bring in voices that um, may not, you know, have a platform and um, bring in some diversity. Yeah. Into I mean, the there, there so is. And there's no I mean, Mexico has this huge dairy culture. Oh, my gosh. I, and we're not remotely representing it in the food no. reproduce. And, you know, I thought about doing it and yet it doesn't feel like my ground. Like it doesn't feel like my space to take up. I would much rather someone from that cultural background who understands what it's supposed to taste like authentically when they're making it to get in that ground. Um, same thing with Middle Eastern countries, Iran, Iraq. I mean, I am totally in love with dairy products from Jerusalem, from uh, Israel. They're, they're, oh, oh my gosh, like everything they do is beautiful and perfect and, and awesome. And like when we talk about food ways in the United States and, in uh, our cheese making, we don't necessarily, we have a very European style mm -hmm. uh, focus on our cheese. I mean, heck, there's even a stir fried milk in China where you combine milk with egg whites and you like whip it up till it's just like frothy stir fry dish. And I think we're really underrepresenting the possibilities of dairy. And, you know, I think that's one of the issues. I don't want, there are lots of issues in the dairy industry right now. And I understand what, have you guys talked about the the 97% fat-free dairy campaign? No, we haven't, but we've been talking about yeah, marketing. Yeah, let's, let's but, double click right. on it. Because like, I, 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 yeah. I love, like, we're ready to go right. there. So um, I think it started by a collection of dairy farmers. Right, right up the road, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, right in your neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it was, I, it is Trotman's one of my neighbors. Yep, yep. They're, they're like three roads that way, halfway between where my husband grew up and where I grew up. Um, and by, by that, I mean, it is like seriously like two rows. Welcome to Berks County. Yeah, yeah. I mean, thankfully, as far as like the, the, uh, the two closely married side, my husband's family is from the western end and I'm from the eastern end. So he pop, we popped out loud. It's okay. We populated him from New York and he populated him from Harrisburg. So like we're two different Pennsylvania German lines crossing. So it's cool. <laughs> so um, and dairy farmers have taken marketing into their own hands. They're currently trying to push the 97% camp. I think it's 97% milk on Twitter. Um, where they're putting up uh, baleage bales. By the way, I kind of want to steal their baleage bales and feed them. Did you see the cheese one? That looks so I great. I did. I did. And there's, there, I saw a butter one butter. recently. I saw a butter one Blow outside of uh, my <laughs> my local discount grocer. Um, which is saying 90, milk 97% fat free. And I, I feel so... I see the farmers. I see what they're trying to do. I see the support it's generating in their community. Um, and yet I question necessarily the marketing technique. I do understand when you go on their website, they have additional information. Um, but first of all, the fat-free campaign was a thing of like the 80s. And right now we're going back into like, hey, fats are good. So it's kind of this like not quite understanding where, you know, there's the saying like, don't go where the puck is, go where the puck is going. They're kind of where the puck was. And yeah. they're not quite seeing that like right now full fat milk is having this more, this uh, revival, revival yeah. of, of health. Uh, in the health food community. And so, and I think it's also obfuscating the, oh, how do I say this? If you're a consumer who sees through it, you're like, huh, what are these guys trying to pull on me? Right. Well, let's tell people, because standardized milk is... It, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, 
all milk is standardized right. in the grocery store. Right. And so full fat milk would be 90, 96.5%. Yeah. You know, you figure there's three and a half percent fat, butter yeah. fat in the milk. So this campaign of 97% fat free is the other what's left right. after you take that yeah. butter fat yeah. off. But, yeah. So and that's where the thinking is. is and right. tra- you know, traditionally, how do I say this? They say drink whole milk, but like traditionally a lot of milk products were skimmed. Like butter makers know this. Like, mm. you know, people did consume whole milk, but they consumed it. You know, a lot of cheeses are skimmed to begin with because there were other things to do with your cream. You need um, butter. Yeah. And this idea of like, you know, <laughs> people drink whole milk um, is is not quite quite representative of the historical consumption of milk. But like I see where they're coming from. I don't know if it's the right marketing campaign to get people back into milk. Um, I think, first of all, it's alienating to non-milk drinking populations who still consume like yogurt and fermented milk products. Um, I think there's a slight political bend to it during the Obama campaign uh, or the Obama administration. Sorry. They... Uh, the the Healthy Food Initiative put skim milk in schools, and there's this theory that Obama ruined the healthcare industry. I mean, the uh, dairy industry by putting entire generation off whole milk. Um, and I think that's more political than uh, actually factual. Um, and that's also behind it. So I I see what they're doing. I I like the spirit of it, but I don't know if it's the right direction to uh, get consumers involved. I think. I think you should say, hey, any dairy is great. Like, eat your yogurt. Eat your sour cream. I think that if you, like, if you Google, like, smoothies and there's, like, lots of cute white women in their kitchen making almond milk smoothies, you need to have the counterpoint of, like, also cute white women making, like, cow's milk smoothies. I think that would reinforce the idea of dairy as a healthy thing. Our milk marketing basically is archaic. Yeah, it is. You know. We haven't, it's been a disservice really to the industry. Don't get us started. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, yeah. I really think we need to open up how we can perceive dairy. Um, open up, like, hey, any dairy products are great. Just just consume us in some ways. What I do think the 97% milk campaign has right is when you go to their website, they have the breakdown of the macro micronutrients in milk. Because um, one thing that is scientifically clear is that um, ultra-processed foods are not good for longevity and not good for our health. Um, we shouldn't food shame people. People can eat what they want. But if you're actually looking for a healthy hey, I need something in the middle of the day choice, and your choices are a special K-bar and a glass of milk, the glass of milk is going to be less processed for you and still contain eight grams of protein. Um, and I think there's space for milk to work its way back into our diet in that way. Now, what it doesn't have going for it, it is uh, you need to refrigerate it. You can't grab go. You can't stick it in your pocket. Yeah. And, you know, there's some there's some aspects of some food scientists are working on that. There are some like milk smoothie products that are coming out. But I think we need to explore the space of how do we get the uh, grab and go lifestyle that people have right now, especially for for health foods, how we integrate milk back into that. Send us your ideas. <laughs> well, because, you know, that's how this all comes about is mm-hmm. part of this whole grant process with PDA was uh, Drexel University was working on alternative uh, products using dairy. And I went down and we talked about some of these things and 
really, really inventive ideas. I hope we see some of the products really kind of come into production. We'll see. And I will say this as an aside. You've been in the dairy industry for a long time, and you know that this is a really bad slump, but this is not the first slump. No. I remember in eighth grade, pre-algebra, May was seventh grade, I charted milk prices since 1950, and they were basically the same. Like nothing had changed from in in uh, 98, maybe. Um, from 1950, that was still $12 per 100 weight. And even if we get people drinking more milk and the price of milk will go up again, that will not counter our overall oversupply issues. Um, every year, cows are making more milk. Dairy scientists are working inside of universities to make cows more efficient, uh, to produce more milk, to produce more milk faster. And we're going to have to develop some... Well, we have to is a strong way. If we want a fair trade industry, if we want a humane industry, both the animals and the dairy farmers, in my opinion, uh, we're going to have to find ways to put stops on our supply and pull back when we have an oversupply, pr- produce when we have an undersupply, um, and not just rely on these crises to m- manage a commodity. The industry will survive. It's just what is it going to look like? Exactly. And and what amount of suffering is going to occur? You know, and I, will small family farms survive? And that's the, the issue. It's not only like that. I mean, I always say that milk price is an animal is an animal welfare issue. I mean, I know the term animal welfare in the dairy industry. People like gasp and go, "Oh God, Peta." Um, but to be honest, you know, when you start having to take out the bottom line, where do you cut from? Hey, that's are kind of expensive. Well, you know what? We would like to put those water beds in or re- put new stall mats in, but we can't really afford them. Um, when you start to cut, where do you cut from? And that's why it's an animal welfare issue. You know, we want happy cows. We want cow. And every, I don't, there are very few farmers out there who don't want their cows happy. You don't want them with wonderful giant fan misters and like those scratchy brushes that they have on gifts that like the cows are just happy all day. The dairy farmers are the purest animal lovers, right? Yeah, I mean, like if you think about the end of the day, these yeah. are the people yeah. who are drawn to this type of farming because they love the animals. It'd be an awful way to earn a living if you didn't like it. Yeah. yeah. It'd be a really expensive hobby. It would be terrible. <laughs> and for some people, it is an expensive hobby. Right. <laughs> um, but not us. No. No, no. <laughs> thank but God for cheese. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you want to um, if we want to make the industry humane for animals, humane for people, and humane for the market, um, we're going to have to figure out other ways of managing our supply. Some of that we've talked about are like the localization of creameries, taking marketing into your own hands, and yet, as we know as cheesemakers, that's a lot. I mean, you've been on farms. I mean, I've been on you know, farms where you're both producing and going into the cheese room afterwards. And the amount of cleanliness you need to take from point one to point B is time consuming. You know, even though I am going to be in the situation, I would almost prefer to have my production off my farm. Like I'd rather take my milk to point B and do it there than like, oh, I'm going to go into my house and get a shower and go back. Because I've been there. And if you're running late, if it's a rough day, you know, it's how do I say this? You have to be super mindful about what you're doing. It has to be the culture of your operation. Yeah, it does. It, it, does. it has to be because we run, you know, we've left a rented facility and mm-hmm. now have a facility on our farm. And there is, a, it is definitely the culture. We cannot break certain rules. Yeah. And not everyone is geared for that sort of operation. And that's not to put down farmers. It's not to put, to put down people who would like to move into value add products to make an additional step up in their um, in how they monetize their milk. 
But I don't think we can just say, hey, farmers, it's all on you to find a better market. I think we need to figure out how to deal with the commodity itself better. Yeah, it's true. That's the that's the question. <laughs> I also think it, it takes a bit of a broader perspective to think about animal protein, animal fat um, in a different way that people, you know, start seeing it as a sustainable source of food. Um, and this is something that Sue and I talk about a lot offline, which is, you know, I, I kind of like focusing on my region. I kind of like thinking about what Berks County can make mm -hmm. and how I can eat within this region and support the hardworking people who are growing food off of this particular mm -hmm. ground, which is very different from going to the grocery store and buying a carton of almond milk, which may have been produced in California or Mexico. And I don't know what the human labor looks like that's involved in that. I mean, we're talking about animal welfare. What about human welfare? Yeah, no, that's entirely true. I mean, we don't know the person who produced that food or the crew of people and how they've been treated. And we've all read horror stories yeah. about farm laborers um, and the way the way they are treated so poorly on these huge commodity farms. Almonds are incredibly water intensive. Mm -hmm. So they're, it's the least ecologically friendly beverage yeah. if you're thinking about that for your bowl of cereal in the morning. Um, you know, I think sometimes we look at these things in such a such a singular way, but we don't take into account the nuances of what goes into producing these foods or these, you know, alternative foods that are maybe alternative to animal proteins and fats, but have their costs, their hidden costs, you yeah. know, that might be more subtle. I mean, let's be honest, when consumers are going, well, let's, let's divide two different consumers. Um, there are some consumers that when they're going shopping, they want their food purchases to make statements about themselves and what they value. Um, but the problem is a lot of that is shorthand. Um, organic milk. Organic milk is shorthand for I don't want pesticides and want to take care of animals. Um, but that's ignoring that some organic operations do have pesticides that they're allowed to use. Not all organic op operations are animal welfare friendly. Or once again, almond milk. For some people, almond milk might be saying, I want to take care of the environment by not supporting methane-producing cows. But they're not taking the whole environment uh, as far as trucking into it, as far as water usage into it. And consumers are trying to make these super different macro decisions in their grocery cart. And when the very sad thing is there's, there's not a lot of that individuals, consumers can do. There's lots that individual citizens can do with putting pressure on political institutions, on politicians, uh, using their voices, using their time and labor to fight for causes they want. But that's not necessarily happening when you're grocery shopping. But we really want it to because we want our refrigerators to be a reflection of ourselves. Myself is not clean, judging my current by my current refrigerator. We're all humans. But on the second hand, we have this additional level of consumer, which I think in the local food industry, we don't talk a lot about, which is there are some people who just need to put food in their grocery cart. You know, I said that when my husband and I were in Harrisburg, while I was working on my Ph.D. program, we were down during the uh, economic downturn. And I had teenagers approach me at the grocery store asking for money with with kids because they want to afford their food. I I stood in line behind a woman at a gas station whose daughter was begging her to get some lunch meat. And she said, hey, we're out of food stamps for the month. May when we get home, we can call your grandpa to take us food shopping. But you can't have this right now. 
my husband for a while, if you get off work late, would take a cab home. And he had his he had a regular cabbie who was a woman who would work 20 hours, a, 20 hours a day, three kids and still couldn't feed them. And those people are not looking for salvation through their food basket. They're looking for cheap and affordable food. And one of the things we also have to do when we're talking about like, hey, this is great and local and it feels good to you is try to figure out how to integrate those people and their needs into our consciousness. Because I've definitely met people who you meet them and you know they're on a shoestring. And they're saying, hey, I'm buying this grass-fed beef because I know it's better for my kids. I'm buying this raw milk because I know it's better for my kids. And we need to figure out how to also serve those consumers, um, but also get them to put, offer them uh, ways of purchasing food that don't make them feel guilty if they get the non-organic carrots. That, that make them able to put healthy food on their table. Because we know mostly the worst thing is is ultra-processed for longevity. It's not necessarily like if your bell peppers are grown without pesticides. And that's something that I really gets me as a cheesemaker. Um, because I always say that I, I'm making a luxury good. You know, I know that someone tomorrow can say, hey, I can't afford this anymore. It, we're we're kind of making art. It's edible art. It's art that feeds your belly. It It's it's wonderful, beautiful, and it is sustenance, but it's also not, I don't want to say necessary because art is necessary. Art is life, but it's not what's calorically sustaining to some people. And as far as like being farmers, I think a lot of times farmers can let that drop to the wayside for a conversation. We say like, no farmers, no food. But let's be honest, like no $8 an hour uh, cashiers at the grocery store, no food. No people picking strawberries like as legal immigrants for below uh, minimum wage labor, no food. Um, And a lot of our talk about farmers focuses on landowners and doesn't take into account other people in the food industry or agricultural laborers. This is the Rebecca we know and (laughs) love. Yeah, I totally totally bring the funny stories. No. No. No, these are conversations that are really important and, you know, as much as Steph and I say, we want this cheese to be at everyone's table, it's really a challenge when, I mean, I know when people come with um, their EBT card, I feel so honored oh gosh. I had to people, have anybody yeah. purchase anything. It's like right. the maybe the biggest honor ever. I knew people that were buying grass-fed beef but then adding TVP, which is textual vegetable protein, to stretch it farther. And I'm just like, I... I, I my heart likes like the, my heart is like broken because like I'm glad that you're uh, you're doing this for me, but also like please just go to Weiss, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, you know, get some ground beef. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's I, I promise you, grocery store beef is okay. Yeah, well I think that's you know I think that's something that um, Rin Caputo and our conversation really uh, got me fired up about was like this whole idea we're talking about you know food access and. Are we just making this luxury good that's serving an affluent community in certain urban areas? But I always think about cheese as just the the most efficient transfer of resources from urban to rural communities. It is this refined food that yeah. can command a, a fine price. Nutrient-dense. Um, Nutrient-dense, but, but can command a, a fine price, can tell a story about yeah. a region, and hopefully, well, if you're a cheesemaker like me who buys milk, hopefully... You're paying a premium onto the dairy farmer for yeah. that milk, which I do, you know, and you two are doing important work because you are the dairy firm farmers and you're you're keeping your land 
in agriculture, mm-hmm. especially you, Sue, being in a suburban community in Chester County. Like you've just carved out this 50 some acres. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 50 some acres of ground right. that you are farming in this regenerative way rather than seeing it plowed over for development. I mean, that's so important. Like what we're doing is important, even though on the surface it seems like a $22 a pound piece of cheese that serves mm-hmm. wealthy people. The ripple effects of somebody in an urban community buying a piece of cheese from people like us mm-hmm. is so impactful. And I try to remind myself yeah. of that when I just think that I'm well. We're dependent on in the luxury. Yeah. We're, we're, totally, we're totally dependent. Our, on our families that. are dependent you on know, it, and then it's beyond our families. It's it's the fellow who delivers hay to us. It's that, your semen salesman. Yeah, our semen it's salesman. Your, our veterinarian. It's, it's your chemical salesman. Like our I mean, milk tester. Everything. Yeah, how many like little guys stop by your farm in a day? Oh, absolutely. Like, all these local businesses, mm-hmm. and we, I'm sure we all try hard to. support you know, buy whatever we can in terms of goods and services from mm-hmm. local right. businesses. This is that economic impact we're, yes. we're talking about. Yeah, and we're employing, you know, we're employing yeah. young people I, from Reading. And I think and, it's super important. And we're talking about it right here to recognize our dependence on on urban areas. You know, there yeah. are some segments of the agriculture population who wants to feel as though urban areas are indebted to them. That, hey, you guys don't know where your food comes from. We're doing the work. Yeah. Um, oh, I should not. That sounds very, uh, the accent's definitely sound uneducated. I didn't mean to sound that way. I meant to sound like surly and rural. But I think we really, you know, I think the New York Times gets a lot about out about writing about the urban rural divide. But like, we're really part of a whole system. And we need to figure out how to talk about that better. We need to not put ourselves in opposition to our urban peers. We also need to be inviting to urban people to come out here. Um, one of the things I really have a lot of hope for in rural areas is that as more people move to working remotely, we can get more people who would be in a traditional urban setting coming to this area. I know that sounds, you know, it's it's counterintuitive to the, say, uh, farmland pres movement. But I'm not saying, like, move into, like, a plastic development home. There are tons of beautiful homes available here. But we can't get revitalization if we can move urban paying jobs back in rural communities. Um, and I have, I, have, I have so much hope that people will decide to do that because I have so many suburban friends who have, you know, they're computer programmers, they're graphic designers, who have gotten themselves in rural in uh, suburban areas and they're like man i wish i could live like you do i'm like hey you can you're working totally online um and that's something i'm really looking forward to in the future is pulling people back to rural areas and that's like a that's like a reversal of you know the industrial revolution and yeah like reuniting extended families in rural mm -hmm. settings and things like that i mean it's pretty cool to see that happening like it's happening for you yeah yeah so cool Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also pretty encouraging that Pennsylvania is number one in the nation for direct farm-to-consumer sales. Yeah. We've which got I, the support. Which I can't stop yeah. telling people about at my markets because I, I think it's so cool. And it is. It's amazing in rural commu- communities how much the direct farm sale yeah. dollar goes. But also, you know, when I go into Philadelphia, I I love that city. I love yeah. the people. They can they care so much. I want to. I want to bring all of my dairy farm family friends who are struggling so hard and don't have a connection to the consumer to the market with me, so they can see that people really value what you're doing. All of that work, they get it. They understand. They just, they're just busy. Yeah. You know, they're busy, and so 
I feel like I could be a guide between the two at market. I don't know. We're all humans, too. Like, I know people who are, who are afraid to go to Lebanon. Like, Lebanon City. Like, in <laughs> Lebanon County. Like, that, that's one county over, but like, like, like the Lebanon City, if you like set your phone, you drive through it in 10 minutes. Like, Lebanon City is where my husband and I would go to skip school to the mall because no one ever goes to the mall. Like, Lebanon City is the least threatening place in the world. Like, okay, there's occasional murders, but that happens if you have a large, like, population density area. It's not related to urbanization or rural, or rural areas. But there's such a fear from the rural community towards urban areas. And like, guys, we're just people. Like, and I think that both both areas need to like figure that out. That we're we're codependent. And there's 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 these political divides based on people who people who are able to move to one area or the other, based on the culture you've been steeped in, what you've been hearing from your peers. But like seriously, we're just we're we're a country. We're not like we're not made up of just cities and like people with corn. <laughs> Rebecca can I ask you something about what you mentioned earlier about your grant and serving as a model why are you driven why are you driven to serve as a model um uh I know. It's a hard question. Well, first of all, I do have a ton of experience. Yeah. I worked for nine years. I, I started as a part-time milker. And I developed a product line. Let's put even cheese aside. I developed a product line involving yogurt, Greek yogurt, fear, chocolate milk, all from the ground up as an English major. So, And I say as an English major just to to put in there that I was not like educated at Penn State as a food scientist. Although I do have a BFF who's a food scientist. And every time I ask him a question, he says, Rebecca, I'm in chocolate. Stop asking me dairy questions. But I do it anyway. Um, but uh, I, I want to see farms be self-sustaining. I want to see other people's art. For a long time, I had a paradigm. I'll be honest here. Even when you moved into the area, I was just like, oh, another cheesemaker up the road. <laughs> um and I have We didn't know we'd be drinking wine together no, on this fine no. evening. <laughs> um and I've become a, a better person. Um I don't mean that in like a self-serving way. Um I think a rising tide raises all ships. I think I don't want to say necessarily the more the merrier, but like the more we get people going to like local stores, the more People will go to local stores. They'll be in that mold to go and buy something from the people next door. Um, And it's also, it's about preserving uh, farms in a way of life. It's not just about family farms. I've, uh, so in my 30s, I've had this moment where like, if I encounter an idea that makes me uncomfortable, I like, I lean into it, which doesn't make life enjoyable, but makes it more intellectually rich. And something we have to recognize about family farms, and, and you know this, family farms are, they're hard, they're costly, they're a lot of work, they're also tremendously valuable. Um, you need to leverage your farm to build a bo- farm, build a build a barn, get new equipment, you can do that. Um, and a lot of starting farmers don't have that opportunity. It's one of the reasons why, I mean, a lot of people can say, oh gosh, farming, why would anyone do this? But we keep doing it. And we need to make room for other people to get into the industry. I've said, you know, already, it's kind of an echo chamber of like the same mindset. I want to be able to build an industry where 
people of color, people from different international backgrounds, women, can also try to figure out how to get their own piece of land and make that land useful. I also want people to be able to hold on to the land. And we know that farms are bought and sold every day, but the buying and selling is this often this consolidation of people who already have farms. It's, you know, getting another acres, another hundred acres over here to buy, to grow more corn on. Um, it's getting like 50 acres over here for my son to start his operation on. And while that's that's good for the community, I don't think it's good for society. I think we need to be more open. We need to provide more opportunities. We need to recognize the opportunities that have been denied other people. For example, the, you know, I can't quite cite the numbers, but we know all the issues with the African-American population and wealth is that they don't have family wealth, that the average white population who earns the same amount of money has wealth built in their household, built in, which goes back kind of to World War II when there were opportunities and redlinings that were denied of black people. Um, and we need to figure out how to uh, offer more opportunities to other people. We can't be insular. We can't just like protect our land for ourselves. We need to recognize that like we're a nation. Mm -hmm. And I want to not only build a build an idea that you know little Rebecca who's 20 years younger than me down the road can put on our family farm but someone else who's also interested in producing their own product and gain their own land can also use as a business model to be able to get their land as well mm -hmm. and that's that's super important to me because for a long time I was like a little FFA girl that was like hey family farming super important and while it is super important the question is, whose family? I mean, are we just about intergenerational wealth being handed down through land? Or do we value other people, too? You know, I think it's really easy as a farmer to remove yourself from the greater societal problems and say, like, yo, I'm over here with my cows. I'm kind of busy. I don't want Well, wanna... I'm, working, I'm working my ass off. Yeah, exactly. I'm I am. The best I can. I'm, I'm, Not a lot of money. Yeah. I'm working 80 <laughs> yeah. hours a week right. here. You right. know, I'm dealing with multi-generational issues. And to see ourselves, because for years I saw myself, I, I, you know, I was an American studies maid. You know, I studied American history for like six years. And like, we could talk about all the problems. And I thought like, I'm not a problem. I have cows. Um, and reality is everyone needs to see ourselves as part of a solution to cultural problems, whether it's financial inequality uh, throughout the nation, whether it's climate change, uh, whether it's food justice. No one is removed from that system. And when we we make we make choices and those choices, who are we serving? Are we serving our neighbor across the street? Are we serving our neighbor in the city? Are we serving everyone? So that's part of my thinking. Uh, I like to wake up and feel good about myself. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> What's your call to action to um, consumers of dairy? Okay. Um, I'm going to say two really separate things. Um, if you want to support the dairy industry, if you feel your heart broken for the plight of the dairy farmer, go buy conventional milk. I know you want to go buy organic. I know you want to go buy it to your farmer's market. I love that she's talking. <laughs> um, Whispers. The inside story. But the people who are really suffering are our conventional farmers. Um, the people who ship to Land Lakes, the people who, sh who ship to Swiss, the people who sh ship to Kreider. Um, those are the people whose, dairy, whose, whose bottom lines are being harmed. So if you want to put your money where the dairy industry is, at least for your whole milk your, or your liquid milk, go to your store and support your regular farmer. 
then go out and get your specialty cheese. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not trying to be dismissive, but like, if you want to support the industry, you can't focus all of your financial um, dollar on one farm. I know we would all love for someone to buy all of our product and only our product. Um, but if you're concerned about the industry, support everyone. Oh my gosh. If I want consumers to know things, <sighs> there's a lot I want consumers to know. Well, the hardest things, once again, things that I lean into that made me feel uncomfortable, farm size doesn't matter. A small farm can be humane. A large farm can be humane. A small farm can be inhumane. A large farm can be inhumane. The size of a cow, the size of uh, the dairy farm, and whether cows have names or not has nothing to do with the treatment of the cows. I find that a lot of people are just like, I'm helping your cows. And I'm just like, yeah, thank you for helping my cows. But please do not dismiss other people in this industry who are working hard. You know, large dairy farms also employ people. Uh, large dairy farms have managers, assistant managers, employees. People who just feed calves, they're their own like little financial job making entities as well. And they're family farms as well. And they're family farms. Yeah. I think like, is it 96% of farms are still family farms? That's slightly misleading because some of those farms when we're talking about like poultry farms and pig farms work on a contract level where a, you know, they kind of pay you to build the house, but then like they bring you the piglets and they raise them and they give you the feed and they take them away. And then you're, you're kind of like indebted to the pig family store, but like pigs are not my scene. I don't understand that industry. Like, I really would like to speak to, like... Cowgirls here over here. Yeah, yeah. I'm totally, like, I really wish I understood more about other aspects of, like, other industries. Yeah. But I totally don't. I only have, like, third-party access to that, so I don't want to speak to other people's decision-making on that. But, yeah, I I would like people to to recognize that. Um, The other thing that, regarding the dairy industry, I think we're having this issue right now, is that there's so much specialization within the dairy industry. Um, You have your grass-fed milk. You have your A2 milk. You have your grain-free milk. You have your organic milk. And all those things kind of send the message that there's something wrong with conventional milk. Um, And I think that consumers put too much weight on labels. And... I think that's one of the issues in the dairy industry is we've had about, you know, a decade and a half of pushing all these different, you know, labels that say, hey, there's something wrong with conventional milk. And like there might be something wrong with conventional milk if you're having trouble digesting conventional milk. But if you're just like drinking milk, it's probably pretty cool. And that's 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 something that like I'm kind of grass fed. I'm pretty grass fed right now. I'm giving a teeny itty bitty bit of grain to my two cows I'm milking that are just for our own household consumption. And that's mainly to lure them into the barn because they're like, I'd rather stay outside with my buddies. But I think consumers have gotten confused about whether milk is healthy um, based on all this information that's out there that they don't totally comprehend or understand. And I just want to let you know it's cool. Milk's fine. If you can digest milk, if it's healthy for your diet, just go for it. What do you want to tell um, the dairy farmers? I mean, we were talking about various opinions tonight related to messaging and marketing dairy. Is there something you think is like low-hanging fruit that dairy farmers and marketers could like shift a little bit to send a better message and reach young people do you want like the happy thing or the unhappy thing let's go for the let's go for the hard truth don't be racist like that's really (laughs) i mean that's really i'm i'm very serious you know oh my gosh i mean hopefully none of these people listen to podcasts but like my father, who's on various boards, goes to the boards and they'll hear like, hey, you know, there's too many brown people. That's why they're not drinking milk. 
Um, and like, guys, you're alienating your consumers. Those are your consumers. And I think, I really do think that some consumers can feel how the industry feels about them. They kind of can read it. They kind of know it. And this gets extrapolated to our national politics when we're talking about like the electoral college. Oh my gosh, I'm getting deep now. And the urban-rural divide that we're being put in opposition with our neighbors and our neighbors are and our neighbors being urbanized. And they're like, well, why should we support you if you feel that way? Why should we support you if we vote that way? Yeah. Um, and I think family farmers are just like, hey, this is my family, but guys, you're running a business. Um, and if you're running a business, like I know you have political beliefs. I know you have things you want to support. But, like, how do I say this? Please be welcoming to other citizens. I've seen horrible racism in the in the rural community. Oh, what, yeah. We have it oh rampant in Berks County. And especially from, from employees I, I used to work with. Mm. And please excise that from your farm. If you have an employee who's driving down the road and yelling homoph- homophobic epithets at the uh, gay couple who lives on your road, please fire them. If you've ever thought, like, hey, the problem is brown people, please, like, don't think that way. Um, You know, growing up, once again, in Berks County, growing up in Berks County, I was just like, hey, if I can, like, be cute and nice to, like, the old racist down the road, like, hey, I'm building bridges and getting along and teaching them that, like, hey, cute little liberal chicks are also your friend. But guess what? No, I'm not your friend anymore. And that's that's something we really need to work on in agriculture is is becoming more open being open being talking about what's okay and not okay to feel towards people and and interacting with with our entire society better i'll tell you like this is a very a small aside my brother's kids are biracial my brother's wife is is chinese and also interestingly i have one cousin and his wife is also chinese and i feel very like kind of left out with my kid here and my pennsylvania german husband but i take my son for a walk in roberts county and people slow down often wave I take my kid in the stroller and I have my cu- my nieces and nephews with me who are like 10, 7, 4. They will blow past us. We- they will not slow for us. We'll like be pushed to the side of the road when I'm walking with my like Chinese nieces and nephews. And that is, they they know that. And they're Pennsylvanians too. They live in State College, you know. And it's super heartbreaking Uh to me, as someone who loves my home and loves my community and came home, to have to take my 10-year-old niece aside and say, hey, that Confederate flag, do you know what that means? And she's like, I've seen it in, like, Houston's history class. And I'm like, let me tell you, because you need to know this. Like, if you are ever, like, lost somewhere and you see a Confederate flag in a window and you see a non-Confederate flag in a window, go to the other house. And for me to be, like, having to explain that in, like, almost 2020 – that is unacceptable and heartbreaking. And she's going to know that. She's going to know, like, hey, when I go back to Nana and Yeye's house, there are people who treat us like subhumans. Well, it's. I think it ties into this conversation, as you said, about the urban-rural divide because, you know, we're touting cheese and cultured dairy as, like, this really great transfer of resources, um, maybe bridging bridging this gap at least in one small way but it does have to be kind of a two-way street like if we're going to send what we're producing to urban areas it's probably a nice idea to um 
receive the cultural exchange as well and some mm-hmm. of those more aggressive ideas as well. You know, if we want those people to be our customers, we have to understand that. And also, like, this is a brief so, aside. Yeah. But, like, you know, what's good for your consumer is good for you. Um, I went out hard uh, campaigning for the ACA because I had spent a number of years working on Dairy Farm Without Health Insurance. I'm going to tell you that's one of the most horrifying things you will ever do. Aside from all the almost car accidents I had, I had... A fire with a propane tank that I ran into. Uh, I had a bail chopper that would regularly throw teeth out. I was once picked up by a herd of stampeding cattle and dropped underneath them. And like, if you've ever had the moment where you think like, I kind of hope I die from this rather than get injured because I don't want to deal with the medical fallout, you'll understand the importance of health insurance. And I think farmers have this way of thinking that like, you know, in general, they're more conservative. I think there's this way of thinking that, you know, we don't want to support the programs to help other people. But like, let me tell you, healthcare will help you. Healthcare will help you as well. You know, my parents struggled really hard to pay our health insurance while I was growing up. I still remember that. Um, it was a giant like cut of our bottom line of farming. And I think a lot of times we want to treat these issues as like those are for other people, but social safety nets are for you as well. Um, I really support UBI. That's universal basic income. Um, that's the idea that every citizen can get a fairly nominal amount of money to help support their life. But let me tell you, if that's going to help the like person in an urban area who graduated from college, who's like transitioning between the space of, hey, I graduated, hey, I need to get a job. That's going to help a farmer when you're in one of those years where the milk price is down or your corn's flooded out. So you need to stop in, you know, viewing things as as an issue about you, an issue about everyone else. Like if it's good for society, it's probably good for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're human human issues not necessarily political issues all right i have one more well it's a big question it's probably a long answer but i give long answers one more question (laughs) for you rebecca which is um going back to your new creamery what does a fifty thousand dollar creamery look like it is going to be 10 by 20 feet uh, however, uh, 10 by four feet of that is going to be a workroom space that will, I mean, a, uh, a utility room space that will house my water conditioning. I spent far too long working without water conditioning and without a uh, UV light filter. And that is so happening. Um, <laughs> the other area is going to be a, uh, 16 by 10 space, uh, for production. Uh, I am planning on going. I'm still working on my flooring because I'm putting flooring on top of a prefab oh, shed. And there's I'm just, just no good answer no, about flooring. Like, you love your floors, Sue. I do. But do aren't you, cheesemakers uh, always checking out each other's floors like all well, the time? Floor, Mats and floors. Well, like the eyes just go straight uh, well, down to we, the ground. What floor a, you have? We have a polyurethane on. Gotcha. I'm, it's I, pretty durable, but it costs me an arm and a leg. I'm thinking about putting. I, I'm, I'm really in my milk house. I'm just like, uh, do I put like resin on my floor it'd be an investment but like i would just have to do it once and because like milk house floors are the same way milk house you never win with milk house floors like you may not know this as far as like the general podcast population but when you're working i think all of our listeners are cheesemakers or dairy oh i'm sorry well (laughs) when you work with acids like your floors never survive destroyed but i'm going to last 10 or 10 years that's something yeah yeah 
I'm hoping to go for FRP walls, FRP ceiling. I I raised, I really was not going to do this, but my uncle convinced me to raise my walls to eight feet because he's over six foot tall. You know, I always, in my previous job. I'm glad you did that. That'll be good for but, air, that, air I know. Yeah. ventilation. Well, in yeah. my previous job, though, I had like the walk-in door was just high enough for me to get in and everyone else would hit their head and it really helped me manage inventory <laughs> because like if <laughs> someone else, would, yeah, well, if someone else <laughs> would go and hit their head, they wouldn't go in as much. So I could like make sure like, hey, the old pro- oldest prox front front, please take that first. So I was kind of like hoping to have uh, a cute size space because I will say one of the things I say about my farm and my cheese making space is like the farm has to work for me. Everything has to work for me. Um, I think a lot of farms have been designed over the years for like taller men, which is great if you're a taller man. I am not. Um, and also it has it has to get used to me aging too. Like I am 30 something. I'm 35. Uh, and nothing's going to get better from here. So like... <laughs> I need to like not wear out my shoulders, not wear out my knees. Right. I need to not be reaching too high. Like things need to be ready for me. Did sure. you did you visit Lena Schaefer over at Dove Song at all? I have known the Schaefers for a while. Okay. I, I don't know. I, I feel as though I know them decently well. I don't know if they know feel as though they know me decently well. Okay. She like. she's working out of a reefer trailer, isn't she? Is she still in there? I well, I don't know. It's been a few I, years I, since I, I said, stopped. I out. said something about that to our inspector and our and our inspector said something along the lines of if they were asking that now, the answer might have been no. Right. Yeah. Do it while you can. Yeah. yeah. What's So what's in this space? What are you getting equipment-wise? Um, I'm really vacillating on my vat size. My initial plan was 100 gallon, but I want to be able to do micro-batches in the winter. So I have to keep in mind, like, what what's the, like, smallest milk amount I can put in. Um, so I might go for a 75 gallon. Um, I'm going to have a draining table I can tie things above for, for drip draining yogurts and cheeses. I'm going to have a three-bay sink. Um, I'm going to super try not to overcrowd it. I worked for the majority of my cheese making career out of a 10 by 20 trailer, um, which was not pleasurable. Um, (laughs) it was, it, it was not a well-designed space. It was too narrow. There are too many nooks and crannies for dirt to hide. Um, I really want something streamlined. I want items that I can move out, uh, if I need extra space. I want area that's easy to sanitize um all that's 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 in mind so really one shelf one draining table one bat one two base sink is where i'm going to start i'm going to try to keep supplies in other areas of the farm or in the utility room um i kind of want to go bare bones i i what i'm hoping to do is you know you might have gotten this as i talk i talk about a lot of things but i really like cows i really like farming and i'm kind of willing to go wherever to whatever product works for the market if they want cheese for me i am so happy to make cheese all day long um but if yogurt products become more popular i will go there so i want a space that's flexible and i know a multi-utility space is not the most well-designed space it's the thing that does everything okay but not everything well right but i'm willing to be flexible i want a soft start you know as we talked about with with investment capital oh now you're talking uh, with investment capital, you know, with this little guy happening, the stakes of how much financial risk I was willing to put in kind of changed. Um, so I want to start with a small space. If everything goes well, I'm totally willing to upgrade. Um, you know, one of my initial plans was to actually build into the old barn space. And I'm still willing to do that, but I just don't want to do that from the start. How about aging space? Um, I am going to um, two different things. I do have a walk-in in the grant. Um, so I'm totally planning on putting a walk-in fridge in. 
Um, I also have a, a 12 by 12 old milk house, which is actually the second out of three milk houses that have been built on the property. And I'm going to price out insulating that with spray foam, closed cell spray foam from insulation to age in there. Um, I want to figure out how much it's going to cost. I don't know if that's a year one thing or a later thing. Um, I keep going down there and I have these beautiful dreams for it. And then I look at the space and I'm just like, I I don't, you know, I think it'll work, but I don't want to like emotionally commit myself to it and dump too much money into it. So I'm going to start, start in walk-ins. I'm hoping to transition into that. Um, one day I really hope to put something, uh, my parents built a retaining wall. Well, they, they rebuilt a retaining wall, uh, for the bank barn bridge. And I would love to go under there with something underground. Uh, once again, that's not like a year one activity, but that would be a good space. Can we, uh, like maybe share your floor plans with our listenership? Cause we do have some dairy farmers who have told us that they listen and who want um, signs of hope yeah, that totally. it might be possible totally. for people to um, set something up for themselves. Yeah, I can also share the grant proposal too, which which has has all that outlined in it cool. too. Yeah. It's been amazing talking to you. I know. I love it. <laughs> I love it. We just got like a shot in the arm. We did. I, I, a shot I, in the arm and a I, kick in the ass. I love it. I listened to your prog <laughs> podcast in anticipation. I was just like, oh, oh, you guys are so cheerful and happy. <laughs> no, but no, we need we need a dose of reality. I mean, we want we want this podcast to really get to the heart of some of these issues and you're you're taking it there. So thank yeah, you. You're welcome. This was this was super fun. <laughs> it's been a it pleasure was, having you. It was really great. I just feel so inspired and hopeful about what you're up to and when we were learning about the grants we were I was texting Rin Caputo was at in Harrisburg when they announced who was awarded the grants and she was texting me and then I was texting Stephanie but she wasn't paying attention and then like five hours later she's like what this is unbelievable by then I was like you know, you were over it. I was like, you have to text Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're here. Consider us as a resource. Great, Not that great. you need us. But no, we're I totally part of do. Community. I'm, I'm super. I really want to learn more. I, there's so much I don't know and so much I've done wrong. Um, I don't mean that as as a as a negative reflection on myself, but just like I am. I'm still in a learning phase and in developing my own business. I'm still there's so much I have to learn. I haven't done marketing myself. Um, and as you can tell with like my general banter, like I'm not the most like, like welcome, let not say welcoming person, but like if you approach me at the farmer's market and you really want to hear about a cute girl with like a baby on a farm, um, I can't always give that shtick well. <laughs> so <laughs> love it. I, I, I love told it. to access, uh, you guys have been super helpful and wonderful. Um, as far and I, I often like point to you guys to people on social media or one time I was having a root canal and I was just like hey you guys you need to check out Collective Creamery <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so you're promoting us during your root canal is that the one where you were nursing that's, that's the same one I was yeah. nursing actually yeah it was a great photo yeah. that's how you know you have a loyal community <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah he was, I was like I'm a cheesemaker I'm on production right now you guys you're in Philly hey check out these guys oh that's awesome um, that's so so you guys are super inspiring with what you're doing um when you're up and running, yes, can we come back to your place and re-interview you and give everybody an update? Not only can you do that, we can do it in my chicken coop. Oh, I um, love it. Which has no chickens. My parents uh, <laughs> renovated our chicken coop from the 1920s into a like 
lounge area Ooh, with, with a whiteboard table and Goodwill style art. Um, and it's the acoustics are great. So I, I would love that. What is what happens in this chicken coop? <laughs> Well, it's like a she cave or whatever. Well, what happened she is um, my parents priced out raising the roof on their house um, because my mother didn't want to climb up a ladder into her old age. And they found that it'd be a hundred thousand. I'm not um, ten thousand dollars cheaper to just redo their chicken coop and store everything in their attic in the basement. But that which was our which was actually where we had calves when I was a kid. Um, and, and then they're like, well, what do we do with the top? And the top just became this, you know, Secondhand shares, red painted walls, space that we play Dungeons and Dragons in, or it's my I have a friend with cat allergies, like place to sleep. So it's this it's this extra space on the farm which I utilize for uh, you know, events. <laughs> and future podcasts. And future, future podcasts. podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, thanks so much for yeah, coming. Thanks down. so much for inviting me. This was Cheers. wonderful. Cheers. Collective Creamery is Stephanie Angstadt, Sue Miller, and Alex Jones. Jordan Heil produced the podcast, and Mike Lorenz wrote our music. You can hear him on Thursday nights at the Tired Hands Brew Cafe in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can learn more and subscribe to our cheese subscription at collectivecreamery.com.